take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to be picking up in verse 13 and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 18. You may recall that at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul switched in his letter, as he often does, uh, from some of the heavy doctrine now to the, uh, the application of that doctrine uh, in the lives of the believers there in the church. And as we will see today, he speaks of a matter of application that will all touch, uh, will touch all of us eventually. The question of what to think about those who have died in the Lord and where to find hope in the midst of our grief uh, for those who have gone before. We find 1 Thessalonians today, chapter 4, beginning to read in verse 13, reading through verse 18. And before we read this word together, please join me again in a word of prayer to our God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we do pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need to hear and to understand this word. We pray much more that you would use it to encourage your people, that you would use it to give us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would guard our hearts, keep us trusting in you, Give us the hope of the gospel and the life in the resurrection through Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning to read in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As far the reading of God's holy and an errant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Two years before his own death, uh, at the age of 62, C.S. Lewis published his reflections on uh, the death of his wife. In the opening words of uh, that work, A Grief Observed, it's called, the opening words reveal how unprepared Lewis was for his experience of personal grief. He writes, No one ever told me. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach. The same restlessness. The yawning. I keep on swallowing. It's probably hard to explain what grief feels like if you've never felt it yourself before. So Lewis settles somewhere between fear and 
uh, and suspense. He settles on what he calls the frustration of impulses that had become habitual. Grief is an interruption, it seems. It's a waiting, a sensation of waiting, but maybe not really knowing or being able to pinpoint what it is that you're waiting for. Jay Adams calls grief a life-shattering loss. It's hard to know what grief will feel like if you've never felt it, but one thing is certain. That is, if that we last long enough, that we wait around long enough, we're all going to find out for ourselves eventually. We'll all experience grief over some loss. Grief over the loss of a job or, or an opportunity or a relationship or, or more acutely grief over the loss of a loved one, a father or a sister or a daughter or a husband. Grief is a universal human experience and no one who lives in this life, not even our Lord himself, is exempt. There are some people that will try to tell you that what Paul means here when he writes that we should not grieve as those who have no hope in verse 13, there's some who will try to tell you that it means that Christians should not grieve full stop. That grief is the sort of thing that hopeless people do. That unbelievers do. That, that the experience of grief, the expression of grief is somehow an indication of a nearsighted faithlessness. And yet we find that Christ stood at the tomb of Lazarus and wept. We find that Jesus stretched out his hands over Jerusalem and mourned the fact that she would not turn to him. We find in Isaiah's servant song that the Lord's Messiah is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and it wasn't because of a lack of faith. Even though Jesus knew the hope of the resurrection better than anyone, in this life he suffered loss. And he suffered the grief that always goes along with it. And if you live long enough, you will too. There is nothing more human than the experience of grief, but there is nothing more Christian than the conviction that the grief we experience is not the end of the story. In these verses, this passage, it's very likely that what Paul is doing is he's writing to people who are now experiencing grief as Christians for the very first time. The gospel had taken hold in Thessalonica maybe two years prior, if that. And Paul and Silas and Timothy were there. He was there with their companions, and they taught the people what they needed to know in Christ. They told them about forgiveness of sins and peace with God and life everlasting. They told them that one day Jesus was coming back to gather his church to himself, but the missionary visit was cut short. And the preachers were sent away in the middle of the night, and as they were preaching elsewhere, life and death continued in Thessalonica. I think as 21st century Christians, it's probably hard for us to put our minds into the same place that these believers must have been when they had to bury the first members of their little church. It's hard for us to know the kinds of questions that they must have had about what death meant for their believing friends. Did their death mean that perhaps their faith wasn't strong enough? 
did it mean that their salvation hadn't taken hold the way it ought to have? Did their death mean that they would be left behind when Christ returned for his church? Did their death mean that the living would never see them again? That the separation of death was final, that it was permanent? It's hard to know what they knew and what they didn't. It's hard to imagine uh, the questions they were asking. Not because they were simplistic, but because they were uninformed, Paul says. They simply hadn't been told. You have been. You are informed. You're not uninformed. You're not unaware the way that they must have been aware. And partly you are not unaware because you know these words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Your understanding of death for the Christian has been informed by 2,000 years of Christian burials. I bet you have never been to a Christian funeral where these words were not read or prayed or preached upon. This passage forms for us, the church now, with the, the value of hindsight, this passage preaches to us the backbone of the hope that we have in the face of death when it comes for a Christian. But these believers did not have that vantage point. They were uninformed in a way that you are not. And being uninformed, they were worried about what death might mean for the sisters and the friends and the sons that they had lost. We need to understand very clearly that that is the problem that Paul is addressing with these verses. We need to understand the purpose of this passage, because understanding the purpose, it will keep us from misusing this passage in a way that it's not supposed to be used. In verse 13, Paul tells us exactly why he wrote all this stuff about angels and trumpets. He says he wants the church to be informed so that they may not grieve as others who have no hope. That's what Paul wants for God's people. He wants them to have hope. He does not want them to be able to win debates about who has the best view on the coming millennial kingdom. He doesn't want them to answer the question of, is there going to be some secret rapture of the church? He doesn't want them to be able to write best-selling Christian books with full-color charts and graphs and maps explaining everything you need to know about predictive Bible prophecy and hidden scripture codes so that you will know when it all takes place. It's true that Paul is teaching here what today we call eschatology. Right? The, the study of the last things. But Paul is not teaching eschatology for the sake of eschatology. Paul is teaching eschatology for the sake of encouragement. Verse 18, the application of the entire text, therefore encourage one another with these words. Paul wrote this because there were grieving Christians who need to know the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. And so in verse 14, Paul takes us straight to the gospel. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That is the central teaching 
of the entire passage. Everything beyond verse 14 is filling in the details. Here we encounter the hope that makes our grief bearable. Actually, there are two thoughts in verse 14. The first is is the foundational belief of the Christian gospel, and the second is the practical application of the gospel to the Christian. In other words, we, we find in verse 14, first, what Jesus has done, and only then what God will do. And we cannot, we dare not separate those two thoughts. That's because there is no hope in death if, in fact, the grave remains unconquered. If Jesus did not do what Jesus did, then there is no hope beyond this life. If death is our final destination, then grief is a storm devoid of sunshine. In various shades and colors, that is exactly what the Roman world believed about death before the coming of the Christian gospel. At the time in the New Testament, there were some vague mythological hopes or guesses at what might happen to the souls of the departed. There were some people who believed that the dead lived on in a sort of shadowy existence in some unseen underworld. There are others who imagined that maybe they, they lived on watching and observing the Uh, the happenings of the living and and unable to interact, but somehow uh, watching. But the basic understanding of the ancient world was that when the dead were dead, they were dead. That's it. Just gone. Archaeologists have found a letter from sometime in the second century that illustrates pretty well the approach. It's what today would be a sympathy card a very short letter written from one family to another family, from a woman named Irene to a family who seems to be mourning the death of a loved one. Here's the whole letter. Irene to Tenophorus and Philo, good cheer. I was as much grieved and wept over your blessed one as I wept for my own Didymus. And everything that was fitting, I did. And all who were with me, Epaphroditus and Thermuthion and Philion and Apollonius and Plantus. But truly, there is nothing that anyone can do in the face of such things. Therefore, you comfort one another. Farewell. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? In fact, that sounds almost contemporary, doesn't it? Have you ever heard the way that unbelievers talk about death? Have you ever heard them grasping for ways to make the life of the deceased seem more meaningful, even while their worldview at the same time assigns no more meaning or value to our lives than that of highly developed bacteria? Fish, who billions of years ago decided to get rid of the gills and try out life on land. And yet what happens when someone dies? Well, we talk about things like hobbies and interests. We talk about the impact that they made, the lives that they touched. We talk about the warm memories that we'll carry about the person who's gone before us as though somehow all of that is the sort of thing that can make it bearable. 
But if the grave is all there is, who cares about your hobbies? If biological death is the end of our existence, it sounds like Irene writing about Didymus. There's the comfort of the world without the gospel. Truly, there is nothing that anyone can do, she writes. No help, no hope. Death claims all. Therefore, she says, comfort one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims a different comfort. It proclaims the comfort and the hope that there is someone who has done something. There is a Savior who has done what we could not. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the only hope that makes any difference. Not just the hope of a living Lord, but the hope of a resurrected one. Not just the hope that Jesus gives us life, but that Jesus gives us life through his death. Don't overestimate, underestimate, excuse me, don't underestimate how significant that statement is. At Christmas time, we sing about the one who came to earth to taste our sadness, don't we? But part of the sadness that Jesus tasted was the sadness that includes the pain of death and the grave and separation. And this is the hope that gave birth to the church, that Jesus died and rose again. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel in which we stand and by which we are being saved, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the foundation upon which our faith stands. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. There is no forgiveness, no peace with God if Christ has not been raised, and there is no resurrection if Jesus has not died. But he did. He conquered death. Not by avoiding it, but by experiencing it. He died as a proof that death has no power over him. And if it has no power over him, then it need not have power over us. So John Calvin says that those who are by faith engrafted into Christ have death in common with him. So that they may also be partakers with him of life. This is the first lesson that Paul applies to the grieving church, that Christ our Lord has conquered death. He experienced it. He endured it. He has overcome it on our behalf. Christ our Lord has conquered death. The second lesson is like it. Because Christ has conquered death, then the dead in Christ are not lost. Verse 14 again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Here is the implication of the gospel for those who believe. 
Because Christ has conquered death, death for the believer is not an ending, but a transition. Through death, saints enter that eternal rest that we are promised in the book of Hebrews. And in Christ, those who have died are still living while we wait for the resurrection of our bodies. This is the meaning of Scripture's language when it talks about those who have died in Christ being those who sleep in Him. Paul uses the term three times in this passage. In verse 15, he gives us a contrast that shows us exactly what he means. Verse 15, he says, We who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Consistently, this is the language of the New Testament. It speaks of saints who have died as saints who are sleeping. And it's not just some little polite euphemism. It is a theological statement. Actually, the the Bible didn't invent this idea of comparing those who have died with those who are sleeping. It's a metaphor that shows up in many cultures around the world and almost universally in humankind. So there are Greek vases that have been found, and, and over and over the depiction of the dead is that they're being carried away by the twin gods, Hupnos and Thanatos, sleep and death. They're combined, and even the pagan mind. Often the language of sleep in in the world is applied to the dead because of the way that a dead body looks like a sleeping body. It's also connected to the dead by the way that death ends our conscious connection with the world around us. We no longer interact with what's happening, much like a person who's sleeping no longer interacts with what's going on around them. And so one Roman poet said that the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. So the Bible didn't invent this idea, but when the Bible speaks of those who sleep in Christ, unlike the way the world uses that terminology, it's not a reference to an eternal darkness. And it's not a reference to being disconnected. Quite the opposite, actually. In verse 16, those who have fallen asleep are called the dead in Christ. Even in death, there is no separation between the Lord and his people. In the very next chapter, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, take a look. Paul says it is our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. There's no separation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it means that two days ago when our sister Mary took her last breath and closed her eyes for the last time, she beheld the face of her Savior. And how do we say it? We say that she went to be with the Lord. And that's not some little euphemism either. It's not a way of avoiding talking about death. It's a way of declaring to one another the truth of what happens, not just to Mary, but to every Christian you've ever known who's passed from this life into the next. When they leave, they go to be with the Lord. There is no separation in death between Christ and his people. And if God's people are joined to Jesus, even in death, then when we die, we know that death is temporary. 
in Christ the sleep of death lasts only until the dawn of the day of the Lord. It lasts only until the Father gives us life to our bodies through the very same power that raised Jesus from the grave. You remember the way that it happened in the Gospels. You read the account of Jesus going to the house of Jairus. And he was surrounded there by the mourners who were weeping over the dead in the corner of the room. You remember how they laughed at Jesus when he told them that the little girl was not dead but only sleeping. I suppose there are people today who think Christians are just as foolish. People who believe that they're really far more in touch with reality than than the believers are. People who know that death is death and death is the end. And they think you're a fool if you treat death as a dream that only lasts until the resurrection. But this is precisely where hope is found in the midst of our grief. It comes when we believe that the very same Lord that spoke a word that was able to raise Jairus' daughter is a Lord who will someday speak a word powerful enough to bring all of his people out of the sleep of death. I suppose it doesn't mean much to the unbeliever. I suppose they would dismiss it as a, a sort of wishful thinking, but to the Christian, since Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again to the Christian. This is the power of God for those who believe. It is the gospel applied to death and grief. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And it all means that the dead in Christ are not lost. They are not separated from him. They have not been abandoned by him. Death for the Christian is the bridge between this life in this world and life with Christ in the next. Death for the Christian is the river through which pilgrims enter into the celestial city. Death for the Christian is the sleep that ends when the day of Christ dawns. And so Christians need not grieve the way that unbelievers do. Christ our Lord has conquered death. Because Christ has conquered death, the dead in him are not lost. The final lesson Paul gives the church in these verses is the encouragement of knowing that when Christ returns, he will gather all his saints to himself together. That Christ will gather all his saints to himself together. Here's another area where I think Scripture far outpaces our ability to imagine the wonderful things that God has in store for his people. I don't know about you, maybe I'm just selfish, but when I think about what it will be like to be in the presence of Christ, when I think about what it will be like to see him in heaven, I think about what it will be like for me as an individual, personally, right? I think about uh, heaven as a sort of first-person point of view, like one of those, uh, those video games where you're in the virtual reality. 
right? You're seeing through your own eyes, and, and there's a sense in which that's how we will all experience it when it happens. We'll experience it for ourselves. And the most wonderful thing will be that when we're with the Lord, we will see him in all of his first-person glory. And it does mean that when we're with him, we probably will not be focused on the other people who are with us there. Of course, my theology knows better than that. My theology knows that when I will be with him, I won't be alone with him. I'll be with a whole number of people. I realize that part of the honor and the majesty that belongs to the Lamb who was slain in Revelation is the fact that he does not merely save an individual or even a few individuals, but he saves a whole people. He saves nations and tongues and tribes and families. He makes them one kingdom in the presence of the Father. I know that. I think you know that too. You know that part of the destiny of each individual believer is to become part of a multitude that no one can number, that will sing the praises of Christ for a thousand eternities. And you know that. But you also know, if you've ever spoken to someone who is grieving, or if you are grieving yourself, you know that in those moments, the questions that arise have nothing to do with the numberless multitude. The questions that arise in the midst of our grief don't even have to do with our personal experience of Christ. The questions that we ask in the midst of our grief have to do with the one who is missing. What are the questions that grief asks? Well, grief asks, will I recognize my son when I see him in heaven? Will he still be a child, or maybe will he be fully grown? Will I see him and know him and recognize who he is? Grief asks, will I ever get to hug my wife again? Grief asks those honest questions that the children ask. In the quiet hours when the funeral is done and you're tucking them into bed and they look at you and they say, will I see Grandma again when we get to heaven? The sad thing is that those of us who have never suffered grief sometimes treat those questions like they aren't very important. We treat them like they're better questions we should be asking instead, like they're that same show of a false faith or a somehow weak faith, because if the person really believed in the gospel, shouldn't they be more excited about seeing Jesus than they're looking forward to seeing Grandma, we think. And we dismiss questions like that. But do you notice that Paul emphatically does not take that approach? Remember the point of this whole passage. The point of this passage is to give hope to the grieving. The grieving suffer grief not just because their loved ones are dead, but because their loved ones are gone. And what grief wants most of all is not just to know that there is life beyond the grave, but to know that there's fellowship. Grief wants to know that when we live with the Lord in eternity, that the ones we love will live with him too. And the apostle never begins to say that those are the wrong questions to be asking. 
Instead, when he tells us how the Lord will come back for his church, he takes three verses to stress the fact that there will be no loss of communion between the living and the dead in the presence of the Lord. When Christ returns to gather his church, he will gather all his saints to himself together, he says. So he tells us in verse 15 that when Christ uh, himself comes back, this is what he's revealed, that there's not going to be a second-class citizenship among God's people. Verse 15, he says, We who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to go ahead without him, he's saying. There's no VIP access for those who are still living. There are no nosebleed seats where those who have died only get to see Jesus from afar and ne'er the twain shall meet because there are different classes of believer, of course. No, no, no. We will not go without them. We will not go before them. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's telling us Christ will gather all his saints to himself together. Now, it could be that when he mentions this word from the Lord, that he's talking about some new apostolic revelation that nobody has yet received. That's possible. I think there's some similarity in the language to some of the things that Jesus has already said, though, that help us to understand that that is what Paul has in mind. Perhaps he has in mind something like the passage from Matthew, chapter 24. Here's what Jesus says in verses 30 and 31. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31, Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Do you notice that expansive language? When Christ returns, he's going to gather all of his people, all of his elect from all the points on the compass, every soul of every believer from one horizon to the other. There's not one that will be missing, not from the living or the dead. And this is precisely what Paul says will happen in verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now here we get into some of that doctrine that we can't avoid in this passage. That's because there are still large parts of evangelicalism that take this text as one of the primary proof texts of what they call the secret rapture of the church. You've heard it probably. It's the teaching that says that Christ returns not just once for his people, but twice. That the first time he comes back, he comes back stealthily, secretly. He comes back just about as far as the heavens, so technically he's here, but he doesn't come all the way down where people will see him. He stays just far enough out of sight that all of the believers who are living then will be whisked away. And all the dead in Christ will be raised and taken away, though nobody will see it. It's a secret rapture of the church. And then all the unbelievers will be left to figure out what will happen to them and what they should do before Christ returns 
the second time, the real time for the day of judgment. I'm not going to take time to respond to every aspect of that teaching because as we have established, that is not the point of this text. But I will ask you, as you're reading these verses, does it sound like Paul is describing something here that can be kept secret? Does it sound very secret to you? Does this sound like the sort of thing that can happen without all of creation noticing it? Does it sound like he's describing something subtle, some unseen return of Jesus to gather only a portion of his people, just those who were alive at that time, just those who have died up until then? Or does it sound like he's describing the great and terrible day of the Lord? Not the one that comes in secret, but the day that reveals all the secrets of the heart of men forever. That day that every believer who has ever lived, every believer who ever will live, will be gathered to Christ's throne in holiness and in praise. The truth is that the scripture knows only one day of return. Only one day of resurrection. Jesus speaks about it in John chapter 5. Verse 25, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is one day of return and there is one day of resurrection and it is the same as the day of judgment. Paul doesn't mention judgment in 1 Thessalonians. Why not? Because that's not his point. He's not trying to frighten the ungodly. He's trying to comfort the believer. And so he says that when Christ returns with his cry of command, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Not alone, not divided, not surging ahead, not lagging behind, not separated from the ones that we knew in this life who loved the Lord. The picture is just like that parable that Jesus told the wise virgins who hear that the Lord is coming and they go out early to meet him. That's what he says. We'll be caught up with them together so that we will always be with the Lord. It's true that in these verses, Paul doesn't answer every question that the grieving have about death and life in Jesus. Paul doesn't tell you how you will recognize the children that you've lost through miscarriage and stillbirth in heaven. He doesn't tell you what it will be like to be with your lost husband. To be unmarried like the angels in heaven are unmarried, yet somehow to have a closer relationship free from sin. He doesn't answer that question. He doesn't tell you what your friendships are going to be like with the friends that you knew and loved in this life who have gone before you. He doesn't answer every question you might have about grief, but he does tell us that our grief finds its answer in Jesus. 
What he does tell us is that in Christ we can have hope. That in him we have an eternal fellowship with one another because we have an eternal fellowship with him. What he tells us is that Christ has conquered the grave. And so in him, those who have died are not lost. And that when Christ returns, he will gather all his saints to himself together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray.